the theologian, old theologian, Daniel Steele, had an experience with God. He wrote about it in something called Five Years with the Indwelling Christ. He was a biblical scholar. Uh, I guess his, his lifespan was 1824 to 1914. He was associated with the Methodist Holiness Movement, was a pastor, a professor, and all those good things, college administrator. But in this, and I'm gonna read for a little bit here because I want you to hear this guy's heart, where he says, it is the 17th of November, the anniversary of the spiritual manifestation of Jesus Christ to me as the perfect savior from all sin, an event transcending all others in my sojourn on the earth. He's talking about an experience that he had with God that, that wrecked him, that changed his life. To the salvation wrought on that day, so long as I can move tongue or pen, I must testify. Rather, I will testify. How sweet the constraining love of Christ, like a furnace blast, melting the I must into the I will, duty into delight. This is the highest freedom possible in earth or heaven when my will elects God's will with unspeakable gladness. Then he gives a poem and he says, I love thee so, I know not how. My transports to control, my love is like a burning fire within my very soul. In my previous Christian experience of 28 years, there always seemed to be a vacancy unfilled a spot which the plowshare of the gospel had not touched. My nature had not been thoroughly subsoiled and thrown up to the light and warmth of the sun of righteousness. I loved Jesus, studied his character with increasing admiration and preached him with delight, but there was always a painful sense that my love was fractional. The response of only a part of my being, a meager tribute to the wealth of my capacity. I was often more enthusiastic in other things than in devotion to the King of glory, the adorable Jesus. Oh, dude, that's, that's insane. Anybody feel like that? The adorable Jesus, anybody talk about Jesus like that? <sighs> Hence, when I surveyed the cross of Christ, there was a feeling of self-reproach a semi-condemnation for the feebleness of my gratitude and the faintness of my love. But the heavenly ten tenant of my soul has changed all this. He has unlocked every apartment of my being and filled and flooded them with all the light of his radiant presence. The vacuum has become a plenum. The spot before untouched has been reached and all its flintiness has melted in the presence of that universal solvent. Oh my gosh. Dude, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, I know it's hard to take in because you're just hearing it. And what is flintiness anyway, right? We don't know, but I think it's something really interesting, right? I would have looked it up, but I forgot, so... 
This is somebody's, somebody's experience with Jesus that just like wrecked them. Like just like, like it's, it's like at one moment I'm a church attender and at the next moment it's just like my life has changed forever. And it's not just going from non-Christian to Christian. I believe he would say, and my understanding historically is that he was already a Christian. In fact, that's what he was saying. In my previous experience of 28 years, there always seemed to be a vacancy unfilled, a spot which the plowshare of the gospel hadn't touched. It's like, I know the gospel, but I don't really get the gospel in its entirety. I know the love of God, but I don't really know it. He's not alone. George Whitfield, written in one of his journals, this was found. I had a glorious opportunity of spending many hours in close communion with God. A sense of my actual sins humbled me exceedingly, and then the freeness and riches of God's everlasting love broke in with such sweet light and power on my soul that I was often awed into silence and could not speak. That happened to anybody in their quiet time this week? D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with the spirit. That's just that statement alone. Oh God, I want you to fill me with your spirit. I want you to fill me with your spirit. Lord, God, why don't I sense that I'm filled with your spirit? Is, is that what he was doing? I don't know. But he says, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with the Spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Like, oh, God. God, I can't take any more love. I can't take it. Can you imagine that? God, I've, I, felt, I felt it too much. It's, it's too much to bear. The weight of God's love. I went to preaching again. So this is after this experience. He says, I went back to preaching. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths. And yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be as the small dust of the balance. Insane. Blaise Pascal, the uh, great mathematician, he was one of the inventors of the mechanical calculator the syringe, and various geometric and mathematical discoveries. This guy was an intellectual. This guy was not like uh, street smart as much as he was book smart. Just a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge. Well, his housekeeper, right after he passed away, was going through the house, and in his coat, he had sewn into the coat, the story goes, a sheet of paper that had this on it. It's jumbled up for sure, but this was his experience. Jotted some notes down in the midst of an experience with Jesus. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, November 23rd. 
from about 10.30 in the evening to about half an hour after midnight, fire. That's the next line. Fire, period. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, thy God shall be my God, forgetting the world and everything except God. He is only found by the paths taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul. Just Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I separated myself from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you abandon me? May I not be eternally separated from him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I separated myself from him. I fled him, renounced him, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. He is only kept by the paths taught in the gospel. Total and sweet renunciation, total submission to Jesus Christ, and to my director, eternally enjoy for a day of trial on earth. That sounds intense, right? Jonathan Edwards. After his death, this account was found. Once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust him, to live upon him, to serve him and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. What does all that mean? Why did I just spend the better part of the first part of my sermon reading these to you. There's more. There's more. There's more of the Spirit. There's more of Jesus. There's a deep sense and, and knowledge of like, Oh my goodness. Did you hear some of these things where it's like uh, George Whitfield saying, I became immediately aware of my sin, but then there was this relief of like, but he loves me. There's this sense of like just ecstatic joy, but then also just this this calmness and this solemnity that happens in the life of these people. There's more. There's more than just church attendance. There's more than just giving intellectual assent to who Jesus is. I dare say that I think that we are suffering as Christians. 
If we do not experience Jesus on this level, if we do not experience our God in this way, what's our passage say? I think it says, there's more to feeling the love of God. And so I'll pick it up in verse 18. He says that, well, actually 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I like the NIV better here, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It doesn't mean that you become God. It doesn't mean that you become like God. It's that you're gonna be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. There's gonna be a fullness that comes into your life when this transpires, when this takes place, because something is going to have happened to you that you've never experienced before. You're going from a weakness that misunderstands to a strength that comprehends. You're going from this, this place of like having weak prayers that simply just say, God, I just we, just, we just pray that you would just give us a safe trip, that you would bless us, that we would just, that we would just you know, have a good time, bless our conversation, whatever. Those aren't bad prayers. It's just, is that all that I have to pray for? Or is the prayer, God, I want to know your love. I want to know and experience your love. And I'm teaching this passage to you while, over the last several weeks. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And I just go, I haven't even scratched the surface. I haven't even scratched the surface. But I think that that's where God wants me. I think that's where God wants you. Do you want it? Do you have a desire for it? Have you, have you felt a desire to experience the love of God on this level? Could you put that before all other things? God, I want you more than my job. God, I want you more than a better marriage. God, I want you more than even getting married. I want you more than anything I could have. I want you more. Because what it seems like is that everything else resolves itself. When the love of Christ has come into our lives at such a level that it surpasses knowledge. That it surpasses like just head knowledge, which we're good at in the church. Many of us feel poorly if we don't do our devotional in the morning or spend time with the Lord. We have this rote knowledge of like everything will be great if I just read this passage or you get on a one-year Bible uh, reading program and you read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible and it just becomes just kind of stoic and robotic and it's just like I am reading through the Bible this year. But there hasn't been any kind of actually seeking the heart of God for you and for me. 
There hasn't been that. If you're sitting here as a non-Christian, I think of you right now, and to say this, that Christianity is not republicanism, right-wingism. Christianity is, isn't even left-wingism. Progressivism, whatever the other isms are, Christianity isn't just church attendance. Christianity is not simply living by the Ten Commandments. Christianity is really none of those things. Some of those things are included for sure. But Christianity at its heart is that there's a core of people who are saying, Lord Jesus, I want to experience your love. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to I get to know you. I want to see you. And the only thing that I want to do today, let me rephrase this. The only thing that I want the Spirit of God to do in your life, I don't care what you think of my sermon. I just want you to leave with a sense of, I just want more. I just want more. Yeah, pray for the marriage. Pray for the job. Pray for the finances. Pray for those things. No doubt. He wants you to come to him. But pray for the heart of what all this is pointing to, it is that he wants you to experience his love. I've said this, I think the last two weeks, a lot of times we come to church and we, we may, may beat ourselves up and say, like, how do I feel about God right now? I don't really feel close to him. I don't really feel any of those things. And the question that this passage is really answering is, how does God feel about you? How does he feel about you? He wants you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's so great that you can't even know about it. Book smarts can't get you there. Reading more isn't necessarily going to get you there. You should read, but reading more isn't necessarily going to get you there. It's beyond knowledge. Reading the Bible in a year isn't necessarily going to get you there. And he wants you to experience this love so much so that there is a fulfilledness, a fullness that comes into you, that you are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that fullness comes from knowing his love. That fullness points to a maturity in Christ. You might say, I don't possess the maturity that I should have. Here's all the things I should have done. Here's all the things I should not have done. See, I'm not mature. But the maturity comes in the fullness of God that comes to you simply by knowing the love of Christ, the love that God has for you. Look at this idea of full maturity in Christ uh, in our next passage, Ephesians 4, verse 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's maturity. It's a maturity that says, I'm attaining to, I'm going after. There's a unity that comes, that flows out of knowing this love. This idea of not getting drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. There's this fullness that comes that says, I no longer need this drunkenness. I want to be filled with the Spirit. It's a maturity that comes 
from knowing the, this, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, I have a counselor. His name is Rich Plass. He is like Yoda and kind of looks like him, all right? So he's amazing. But he told someone recently, and they wrote it down for me. He said, uh, strength to comprehend is an invitation to understand. It's an invitation to understand. To understand someone, you must be present with them. Not distracted, trying to accomplish something, but still and quiet. We must be present with ourselves before we we can be present with God, before we can transform others through the presence of the Spirit. And I think it's why the psalmist says, In Psalm 62, one, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Waiting and silence, unhurried. Without the anxieties of the world as best we can. Waiting and silence. Knowing ourselves. We know ourselves when we wait in silence, we, we, become, we come to a place where we begin to know who we are. Many of us hate ourselves, either because of things that we've done or we just don't like ourselves. And this is not a sermon about loving yourself more. But what, what must happen is this, is that we've got to dig into who we are, what am I feeling about myself? I remember when I started counseling with Rich and he said, so Matt, what are you feeling about your family of origin? How do you feel about your mom? How do you feel about your dad? I don't know, I couldn't tell you. And he said, Matt, that's a problem. You don't know yourself. Well, guess what? Matt has a really hard time and a really hard time knowing himself because I just don't stop. My mind keeps going. I just, and I have to force myself. It's like I have to chain myself down and just be like, stop thinking about things. Sit here, do nothing. That sounds like death to me. I don't know if you're like that, but I think it's incredibly important that we do that. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's sitting and knowing yourself. First, like, where are my problems? Where's my sin? Where's my inadequacy? Where, where, where is all of my insecurity? What's it in? Why do I feel insecure? Why do I feel secure? What's, what's going on with me? And then we're meeting with God and, and maybe we pray with the psalmist. God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know where the joy that I seek is in the things that I accomplish? The joy that I, that's, that's me the joy that I seek is in the things that I, have, I accomplish. But this says, uh, uh, you make known to me the path of life. You're the one that knows that. 
It's in your presence that I can experience the fullness of joy, the maturity that I want to attain to in God comes from being in his presence, being alone with him. The pleasure that I desire in my life, the things that I'm working towards, the things that I want, the things that I desire, it's, they're in your right hand. They're not at my hands. They're in your right hand. So I wanna tell you this, there's I wrote some things down, it's all scripture. I didn't write it, somebody else, I didn't write scripture, sorry, that, that, that came out wrong. I think we have to look at him. You, you gotta look at him, you gotta see him. The, uh, to understand someone, you must be present with them, Rich Plass said. How do you be present with Jesus, who physically does not seem to be here? How can, how can, how can we look at him? You can look at him through scripture. Mark 17, a, a man runs up, I'm sorry, Mark 10, 17. A man runs up and kneels before Jesus and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one that's good. Uh, you, know the, you know the rules, do this, do that, do the other thing. And this guy arrogantly says, all those I've kept. And Jesus knows his heart. And if, and if I were Jesus, I'd be so irritated with this guy that just walked up to me and said, I, I got it handled. What's a, where do I, is there a, a ticket I need to buy? Like, what, what do I need to do? Go to, go to church? Okay, okay I'm, I'll, I'll go to the temple, okay. Sounds good. I think I'm there, Jesus, pretty much. I'd be so irritated. I'd be so annoyed. Get out of here, you punk. Like, like what, why, why would you even think that you could be perfect as, as, as your heavenly father is perfect? How, how could you think that? How could you feel that? That's not Jesus. What's Jesus like? How does Jesus feel? Mark 10, 21 says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Oh, that's convicting. Gosh dang it. I don't do that. You know what I do? Do? I walk up to Jesus and say, I think I got it figured out, dude. I'm in. Look at, look at the work that I'm doing for you. Look at what's happening. Look at what's going on. I'm the arrogant punk that walked up to Jesus. And can I imagine, can you imagine his face? He looks at Matt and he loves him. In the middle of your sin, Jesus looks at you and he loves you. Can you see him? Can I see him? Think about the woman at the well. The woman at the well, here's this She's, she may be promiscuous. She's had like five husbands. She may, it's quite possible that she's been abused. So she's damaged goods. 
and she's used, used and abused. She's somebody that no one has a lot of respect for in her town. Jesus has an ordained moment with a woman who's a Samaritan. A Samaritan is not somebody that a Jewish man, especially a Jewish rabbi, would be hanging out with. Jesus has an appointed time. I'm gonna go meet that gal. I'm gonna hang up. Can you see him? I'm gonna go meet that gal. So he kindly says, hey, can I get a drink of water from you? Hey, I thought you weren't supposed to be talking to women. A woman like me. Yeah, but if you really knew who I was. What's he inviting her to? Find out who I am. If you really knew who it was that asked you for a drink of water, you would have asked him and he would have given you eternal life. Like if you, if you really knew who was asking, what's he inviting her to? He's saying, come on, come on. I know you feel used. I know you feel abused, but come on. I love you. And what's he say? I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. He, re- he reveals himself to this woman. He shows himself to her when there's thousands of other people that he didn't say that to. He just said it to her. What's he inviting her to? He's inviting her to know him. Do you feel used and abused? Do you feel promiscuous? Jesus looks at you and he loves you. That's what he does. Isn't that cool? The first thing is to look at him. The second thing is to believe him. I was just at a retreat with uh, other men from Acts 29. It was the Acts 29 leadership team. And we had a couple of our guys lead a devotional. And the second one was done by um, Rick Reeves. He's a pastor down in Eugene. He's doing an amazing job planting a church down there. He has, I think he's been there for six years. But we walked through this exercise and he just said, um, what I want to do is I want to read some scripture here to you. And then what we're going to do is um, we're going to say something um, just encouraging towards each other because we don't do that very well. We're always in competition with one another as people. And then uh, put on top of that a bunch of young pastors. I still consider myself young. Um, we uh, are always in competition with each other in our sinful nature. And so he says, what I want to do is I want us to uh, receive the encouragement of one another. And here's the thing though, you can't be bashful, you can't make a comment, and you can't make a joke. All you can do is receive. Do you know why he said that? It's because every time someone wants to say something nice about us, we want to say, oh shucks, that's not true. Do you know why? Because at the very heart of who we are, we don't believe the love that God has for us. I don't believe the love that God has for me. He says, this is, this is representative. Your desire to not receive what someone is saying about you is, is directly representative of how you feel about God and his love for you. It was amazing. Here's, I think, six, seven guys sitting here just going, and you're squirming. You're going, oh, I can't handle it. Oh, 
it was, it was so tough. But we have to believe him. Matthew 3, 17, Jesus comes up out of the water. He's just been baptized. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes and lands on his shoulder. And there is a voice that comes from the heavens. And Matthew 3, 17 says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the father in a booming voice says, I mean, can you imagine being in that place? That like everyone's standing outside. Do you know what it takes to have a sound system that like everyone can hear outside? Jesus just gets baptized and it's, and it's like, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Whoa, what was that? Did you hear that? That was nuts. Oh my goodness. Then look at what it says in John 15, five. As the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. John 16, 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. John 17, 25 through 26. Oh, righteous Father, even, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you know what that says? Matt Porter is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Whoa! Whatever your name is, is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. All that the Father has given to me, I'm giving to you. The love that's, that's, that's come from you to me is going to them. What is the Father saying? The Father is saying, I love you. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Like, could you pound that into your soul? Could you pound that in there and just go, yes, yes, Lord, I want to receive it. And then to just sit there and to not be able to say anything. No, God, you don't know all the reasons why you shouldn't love me. You don't know all the reasons why I continue to jack this up. There's no reason why you should love me on that level. Nonsense. Nonsense. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Why does he say that? You, you are loved by the Father just like I am loved by the Father. Jesus said it. Believe him. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and he'll declare it to you. Believe him that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Believe him. Look at him. Believe him. Obey him. You... This can get so out of whack because we say, well, the reason why I'm not experiencing God 
Or God would love me more if I, if I did these things. No, it's like, it's like I experience a little bit more of the love of the Father. What, what was it that that guy Daniel Steele said? Doggone it. I gotta find it. Where he says, how sweet the constraining love of Christ, like a furnace blast, melting the I must into the I will, duty into delight. The, let the Father's love come to you with no rebuffing him. When those that, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, let it come to you. Let it soak in. Ask that the Father's love by the power of the Spirit sent to you through Jesus Christ would come to you in such a way that it turns the I must into I will. That it goes from I have to do these things to I get to do these things from duty into delight. What's it say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. I love him because he first loved me, it says in 1 John. He first loved me. I'm responding in love to him and here's what he says his love language is. You know about love languages? If you're married, you probably should, right? God's love language is, I love you so much, would you respond in this way? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's my love language. That's what I want. That's, that's what I desire from you. But it's not even from you, it's for you. I think about all the things that are going on in our world. The way that, I mean, the way that people are thrown away, the way that people are abused because our world says, do whatever you want. Have as many partners as you want. Do whatever you want with your money. Do it. And it's destroying you. It's destroying me. It's destroying us. It's not what he wants from you, it's what he wants for you. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments because when you keep his commandments, life just simply goes better. John 14, 20 and 21. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see what that said? I'm gonna love him and I'm gonna manifest myself to him. It, he loved us first, but then there's this, I'm, I'm speaking God's love language by saying, okay, I love him, I wanna do what he says. And he says, there's like more love that, get, that gets thrown on there and there's a manifestation. There's, there's an, an appearance of God in our lives where we just go, ah, yes that maybe attains to some of these stories that I read to you at the top. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Obey him. Look at him. Believe him. Obey him. Seek him. I... Uh, grew up in a Christian home. I hated 
so much of the church. I, I don't know why I hated it so much, but I, I couldn't stand a lot of things about it. I, but I knew that I maybe didn't have relationship with God on the level that I should, obviously. And so I, I went on a mission trip. I prayed this prayer. God, I'm not gonna worship you. I'm not gonna say things that were hypocritical. And I think that's the thing is that I, I thought this is all fake. People raising their hands in worship, people saying these things, it's all fake. It's all, it's all not real. And I, and, I, and I went with a bunch of young people and so there's a lot of energy and a lot of experiential stuff that's happening where people are just like experiencing things and I think it's just like this group think that's taking place and I just said, I'm not doing that until I feel like that. And so I, that was my prayer. God, I'm not doing it until I feel like it. In this verse, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. It's right after the verse that says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you uh, a future and a hope, which ends up on a lot of coffee mugs and stuff like that, but really only applies to Israel when they were in captivity. And so like, it's, we take it as a promise and say, God only wants good things for me. Nothing bad will happen. Well, guess what? They were captives. And God says, I still have good plans for you. And then he says, then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Oh my gosh, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What's that saying? It's saying, this is God's promise to Israel, but he, what it also is saying is this. This is what God is like. It's not a direct promise to me and you. This is what God is like. This is how he dealt with his people there. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Which caused me to say, okay, what part of my heart is not seeking him? What do I want from God? Do I want health, wealth, prosperity? Do I want life to just go better for me? Because I've been a screw up and now if I just do the God thing and I obey the 10 commandments, like I, I have this Mormon friend whom I love dearly and he was an addict, like he was on meth and just lots of different things and he was totally tore up and then he decided, okay, I'm really gonna dig into my family's religion and I'm gonna do it because this is what's gonna keep me from screwing up and so he dug in as a Mormon and he was like, I just have to keep doing it so that I can stay here and stay sober. But it wasn't like a seeking after God, like God, I'm not just here for addiction recovery. I'm not just here so that my marriage gets better. I hope you came because you want your marriage to be better. But God is saying, I want you to seek me because you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There's multiple other examples, but I, I need to close. There's the widow from Luke 18 that keeps bothering the unjust judge and says, I... Give me justice against my adversary. And the judge finally says, okay, fine. If you're gonna keep bugging me, I'll just do this. And Jesus says, like how much more is the just judge 
going to answer your prayer. Go after him and say, give me justice against my adversary. Seek him and say, God, I want this. I want it. I want it. I want you. Think about Jacob as he was wrestling with God in Genesis 32. Where he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. God, no, you're not getting away from me. No, not that we can demand things from God. But Jacob said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Don't let go of God. Go like the psalmist. In Psalm 86, it says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, said, sue him for it. Sue him for it. Like, how do you sue God? It's like, go after him. Say, I want it. Do you want to experience, to comprehend with all this, the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? It's yours. It's mine. He wants to remind us of it. As the ushers come forward, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray and we ask that you, Lord, the, 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 the only thing that I lack so many times is desire. So God, if we could just go a few steps ahead of actually receiving and just say, I just want to want your love to be present in my life in a way that is transformative. Lord God, what would it look like? What would it be if there were multiple people in this church that have stories like these ones that I read that they don't really even want to tell anybody about because it's too sacred, but they just have experienced you on a level that they've never experienced you before, and it is wrecking them and hundreds of people are being impacted and their lives are changed forever. God, we ask you for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go to the Lord's table here.